Today at the SDGI Directors in Dialogue, director Shimmy Marcus talks about his new film, Soul Boy, in conversation with fellow director Kieran J. Walsh. such an unusual uh, thing, that whole Northern Soul thing, where, you know, American music from the 60s became really popular in the early 70s, and right up until the mod revival, probably in the 80s, in Britain. Uh, did you have to do a lot of research to find out about it? I mean, it's so odd, because, you know, those, some, of those, some of those tunes weren't hits in America at no. all. When they first got released, they went nowhere. The majority of them weren't, weren't hits at all, like, you know. And then they came to Britain and they became hits, small hits. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, most of the yeah, music never saw, I mean, some of, the, some of the biggest songs only were pressed maybe 40 copies, 50 copies. Wow. That's like the collection thing, you know, um, very rare, yeah. And the artists, you know, most of them died poverty or are still working in washing dishes in kitchens and... Uh, a lot of them also they were session musicians they'd be like they'd come in and do play a bit of guitar or something on some major artist session and then they'd be half an hour late and say I have the song let's let's quickly knock it out and they put it together you know Um, but they were amazing musicians as well which is another reason the music is so good but they weren't um, they were all they were never picked up or they never became huge at all except in the north this phenomenon in the north of England these guys started finding these records and bringing them back only in the north, and just became massive, huge, and became the forerunner then of the rave culture, rave scene of people travelling from all over the country, on buses through the night to get there, and dancing out of their minds on all night long, all night long, yeah, yeah. all weekend, all weekend, yeah, yeah, Yeah. all weekend, weekenders, yeah, Yeah. still goes on, I think, down, oh, hugely, yeah, yeah, Uh, the only difference now is that the majority of the people there are in the fifties and (laughs) sixties. Uh, yeah, we were just at <coughs> we just had a premiere in Stoke on Trent on Saturday night, and we we did a we decided to screen the film and do an all nighter, and we did it in the location where we filmed the casino scenes, uh, where they do have regular all nighters, and I'd say the average age in there was forty seven, fifty. Yeah, actually, if you watch the end of the film, which uh, there's just the yeah. credits rolled at yeah. the end of the film, they have an inter- interviews with guys in their forties, fifties. Yeah. Who've been dancing for thirty-five years, and, and they came along. There were extras and stuff. We right? used them as extras, yeah. Mm. Uh, partly for two reasons. First of all, we wanted to include this Northern Soul community in the film, be part of it. Um, <coughs> and for some of the the big scenes in the casino, we needed hundreds and hundreds of extras, mm-hmm. um, and we wanted them to be in the film in a sense. But uh, also because they know how to dance. Mm. A lot of the younger generation don't quite have it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've got some of the moves some of them are brilliant at it but uh, there's a way to, to move it's kind mm-hmm. of all below the waist yeah. and we could shoot a lot of that from the waist down kind of thing but there's even there's a, there's a guy in there who's doing this ridiculous spin on the ground and backwards and rounds and we threw a cap on him because he's, he's 55, 56 <laughs> or something and just to hide in the blur you wouldn't see his face yeah. uh, but they really they still got all the moves and they were still there at the, at the premiere dancing until 7 o'clock in the morning Still dance like that. Still dance. I saw one guy at three o'clock in the morning coming out of the toilets, and he was—I'm not naming any names—but he was obviously wired to the moon, and he's like, <laughs> "I'm getting too old for this." Uh, but you could see he was still enjoying. Do you reckon they're still doing drugs on special occasions? I'd say. Speed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the speed. Yeah. It was—it was—it was amazing because there was this huge. Um, it never made the the finished finished film. There was in the script that we had the scenes where they went to rob a chemist. 
um, to get over. It just became a very quick line. He's got a mates and boots, a lovely mm. chemist. But there was this huge spate of uh, break-ins and robberies in chemist shops all around the north of the UK because they needed to get the slimming pills and all that stuff they were using for the for the weekend. <laughs> Um, listen to this. I know this this uh, film has had a, a, a long gestation period, mm. um, and it's the story of of the film. Uh, I think is probably going to be of interest to uh, directors who are banging their heads against a wall to try and get films made because it. And actually, to your credit, you've done. But the, using a northern soul expression, you you keep on keeping on to get this yeah. film made. You know, can you talk about that a little bit? Just how it came yeah. about and stuff. Yeah, it started with the, as a play about 12, 13 years ago. Uh, writer Jeff Williams from Middlesbrough wrote this, he, he, got in, he was in the scene, got, he got into the scene rather, <coughs> wrote a little play about it and then he said, well, let's see what happens. It, 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 it was nagging at him, so he developed further into first draft. That became second to third draft, showed it to the producer, Christine Alderson. So was, the, was the play a success? Like, did it, uh... it was just, a, it wasn't a huge touring thing, it was a very mm. small community-based play. Okay. Um, it, was, it really was that small, you know. Um, and um, I don't think Christine saw the play, but she saw the script and straight away saw the potential uh, um, of these characters. And then Jeff did another couple of drafts, and then uh, Christine was a co-producer on Headrush. And when I was editing Headrush, she gave me the script to look at. And uh, that's when I came on board and was like, I'm definitely having some of this. Mm. Because she knew I was really into the music, and... Uh, and I just saw I just saw so much in the story about um, not just about the music and the dancing, which obviously was going to appeal on on a broader commercial level, but is uh, the story of Joe and that, I mean that sense of being seventeen, eighteen, being stood on the edge of the dance floor looking in, <laughs> feeling like a spare prick at a wedding, and just you know wanting to belong to a scene. And I thought that I loved the way the script kind of summed up that kind of time in in, in young people's lives. And that's what I was kind of more interested in, interested in exploring. So that was 2003, I think, I came on board. And then we were, plan was to film it in Ireland. We got development money from the film board, and then we got a production loan, offer of a production loan. We were supposed to shoot in Dundalk. And uh, five, five weeks before shooting, there was a change in um, management in the film board. And the new people coming in didn't like it as much as the old people. And so it kind of got thrown out, basically. So we had to go back to square one and start funding again. And that's when it moved to England, got some regional funding, and we just literally kept at it until May of 2008. Uh, Christine says, we just got to go for it. And, uh, and we knew it was ridiculously ambitious because we trying to do a period costume film with that kind of a soundtrack, and we needed the songs. And... Uh, and that amount of people and and no money to really build sets or anything. I don't think there was one set, constructed set in the film. It was all real it's locations. It's a lot the north of England, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, it really does. Um, what, where, was it Stoke? It was Stoke-on-Trent. Yeah. It started with the King's Hall. We, had, we really needed to find um, a place to replicate the casino, uh, the Wing Casino, which burned down in 1981. And we'd heard about this place, the King's Hall in Stoke. And Stoke is a hotbed of Northern Soul as well. They're quite fanatical there. And one of the earliest DJs there, Kev Roberts, lives there. He's got a radio show. And um, he said, come and check out this place. And we went there and it was very, very similar. It was much bigger, but it was pretty close. So we figured with a little tweaking and um, subtle camera movements, we could make it look like the casino. And from there, we just spread out and started looking around the area. And... Um, 
it's still got that red brick, you mm. know, you can always taste it and um, it's still a very depressed part of the world, as mm. is most of the north of England. It's the potteries, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's six towns made up into to one and um, and I love the chimneys and I mm, loved yeah. the uh, it's the people there are still very passionate about soul and we wanted to do that rather than we wanted to keep it northern. Uh, and because it's northern stories, northern film, and we didn't want to shoot in London and cheat it or premiere even in London and keep it as north as possible. Um, so there was lots of reasons for, that, uh, for us to, to do it in Stoke in the end. And we got even the local university came on board. They gave us a lot of space to put at the production offices and do rehearsals and that kind of thing. So the whole town pretty much got behind us. So it was. Uh West, West Midlands, was it West Midlands? Screen West Midlands, Midlands came in, the majority of the funding, yeah, majority a whole, fund, whole yeah. bunch of others. I think we shot it on 400,000 was the really? budget to shoot, starting, but starting yeah. yeah, and then we obviously we needed to get more, a lot more for the post as well. So you got to, you went out and shot it, and then it was We like shot it with a budget to, 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 to finish as well, oh, uh, okay. but things uh, very quickly started getting out of hand uh, and falling behind schedule, and... I basically insisted on shooting on film. Cause what, it was what was it shot on? 16. Super 16. Yeah. Because it's a, it's a 70s film. Yes, of course. And I wanted that yeah. Uh, yeah. feel and taste. And, um, and producer Christine, who's amazing, just said, of course. So <laughs> we'll, have, well, we'll have a look at it and see. And then eventually we said, well, look, if we don't go crazy with the shooting of it, we know what we're doing. We'll, uh, we'll go for it. So we did that as well. But we had a lot. We had, it's a whole other story. The actual shoot was a nightmare and went way over schedule and actors getting days, sick. And many days was it? was originally five weeks. I think after the first five days, we were three days behind schedule. Um, and it's like, there's a lot of dancing, there's a lot of accents. I know people like, you know, yeah. uh, your lead, is a, he's from Greenock or somewhere. Yeah. And, you know, uh, Felicity's, she's not from there either. Is she? No, she's from, she's Birmingham, but she won't be so, she's posh Birmingham. Posh accent, Birmingham, yeah. She's kind of trained, you know, yes, um, yeah. but she can do many accents. And McCarty's a Ouija and... He is, yeah, hardcore. Yeah. yeah. It, was, so it was amazing because particularly Martin Constant, the lead, when, when he arrived in Stoke, went straight into Stoke accents. No problem. Well, he, he did a lot of work with the Dialogue Coach. He was oh, right, drinking yeah. with the locals, hanging out with the locals, and... Um, it started off okay and it just got better and better, but he never came out of it. Even if we'd have a Sunday off, which was rare, he would stay in it the whole time. Mm -hmm. And um, and Alfie, it wasn't until Alfie's London, right? Alfie's London, Cockney London boy, yeah. 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 Um, all, none of the cast were from, none of the main cast were from Stoke. So yeah. they all had to, um, and they pretty much stayed in their accents when, they, when we weren't shooting as well, just to help each other. And it wasn't until the rap party that everyone suddenly went back to the, and you forgot he was Scottish Martin. it was bizarre <laughs> couldn't understand a word of him so you had that you had all those accents to deal with um, and you had all this dan I mean the dancing you know because you know Martin Constant he's a hard working kid you know he, yeah, he's he learned method. how to dance right you know yeah he um, <coughs> we found this guy Keb Darge Keb Darge was an original dancer in the casino and uh, he's a worldwide DJ he's amazing uh, though he's getting into rockabilly now mm. um, and he, he won, you know, British Disco Dancing Championships and all that stuff. And um, I hooked up uh, with him and he was really great for, he has just an amazing collection. And I asked him <coughs> if he trained Martin. And he was like Mr. McGarry from, um, what's the Kung Fu movie? Wax on, wax off, Karate Kid. He was like, we liked that with Martin. We brought him to his flat in London and, and every morning he would sit there with a stick and a bottle <laughs> of whiskey and just keep hitting him until he got it right <laughs> and uh, and Martin just kept working and working and working and I remember when we were in, in Stoke um, we had a rehearsal room set up for just for the dancers and uh, 
supposed to finish at 4 or 4.30 and the choreographers and everyone would go home and I'd be there at 9 o'clock and I'd hear music and I'd go in and he'd still be there uh, to the point that he, he started breaking bones in his foot three days before we started shooting because okay. he, he overdid it. And uh, so we had to dance his way through that as well. So w was the, the delay that you encountered the first three days, or the first, you were th a day behind in the first three days or something? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Was it, was it uh, because of... Uh, Martin, not No, 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 because of like, you know, the fact that you didn't, I don't know what you were shooting at the beginning. What were you shooting when you first went out? We, the first thing we did was we went straight into the, the casino and did all that stuff first. Because so it was the only two weeks we could get the place. Right, yeah. okay. So it was madness. We went in with just ridiculous amount of lights and a very pretty small crew. One and, camera? Uh, oh, yeah. Which one? We okay. never had a second camera. Okay. Um, wow. Because, I mean, I, I, we had to shoot like yeah. single camera. Two yeah. weeks. Two weeks in, in to shoot all the casino stuff. Um, but the first, um, we had to black out the place as well and <coughs> pre-rig and night and the electricity system was antiquated and it had to be, it was just a nightmare. So yeah. it was literally, I think it was, so I don't think we get shot anything on the first day and then maybe early on the second day we began to start shooting stuff. Yes, you used their electricity source, you didn't bring a generator in. We had, pro no, we see we low budget, so we had a small yeah. jenny. Yeah. Right. Uh, but we're trying to, we're using so much stuff and we, we were turning some of the rooms into costume rooms and makeup rooms and rehearsal rooms and there was uh, all the catering was done in there as well so how many uh, extras did you have it varied there was we had we had a core group of background dancers about 30 <coughs> who were who are still hugely into northern self and they dj around the country and they dance and they were kind of always there thereabouts in the background of the characters and then there was we had one day where we brought 700 in and we basically we couldn't shoot any scenes, we had to shoot just shots, single shots from a scene to use the crowd because we couldn't afford to pay 700 extra. So we knew we only were relying on favours. I think they got travel expenses or whatever. So uh, we'd go and shoot, you know, a scene from the balcony of the crowd or whatever, and then cut, and then we'd go onto the stage and shoot from a different scene, just one shot. So we were just picking up these single shots that I knew I was going to be dropping into different scenes. Wow. So for continuity-wise, that was a nightmare as well to try and remember that and you know getting people. To, it was just a machine recycling. Well, you get changed into day forty-two. Well, we shoot day sixteen now and day whatever, and put his black eye on and take his blood off and quickly and shoot the back of his head because we don't have time to take the makeup off. And so it was pretty. It was it was crazy, um, and then we actually went back and did reshoots and we did uh, another day in there uh, to pick up more stuff. If we needed. Uh, I, I presume the um, tainted love track was probably that looked as if it would have the most people in it that, you know where they all could it was we certainly so. used it and the weird thing was about that track was um we had them in and they're all um it's not like a disco where everyone dances opposite each other you know quite often they just dance facing the dj mm. or they dance to themselves in their own space it's you never get kind of couples dancing or anything like that and uh, they were all there and um we had some kind of background music playing low because as soon as they arrived, they were putting the talc down and they just wanted to keep dancing. Even when we wrapped at 7, 8 o'clock that night, they were complaining that we turned the music off, so we just turned the music on and they just kept dancing for another couple. Wow. And this, this is the older crowd I'm talking about, not the young ones. And um, so we're testing... They don't get out much anymore, I guess. <laughs> they, I tell you, they put a lot of us to shame. Every weekend yeah. they're out. Um, and then we put on Tainted Love and I just whacked the volume up just to see... And as soon as it came to that part with the hand claps, mm. the entire place went, and uh, it was it was amazing. Yeah. Now, 
they're the purists will tell you that you're not supposed to clap like that. You clap to the side, <laughs> and it's a, another major flaw of the film that we got the clapping all wrong, you know. But uh, but, um, but I remember that moment when the whole seven hundred of them were clap clap, and then I just looked. I just happened to catch eyes with the producer, and we just went, "Yeah, great. gotta get that." Yeah, great. Yeah, it's uh, one of those hairs in the back of your neck moments. It's great. Um, so uh, the the fact that the film has you know kind of had a kind of a rocky ride in mm -hmm. terms of getting made. Um, first of all, I presume that when you originally were going to shoot it in Ireland, it was still going to be set in in, in the pottery. Yeah, yeah. yeah we were okay. going to shoot in Dundalk. And shoot it in Dundalk. Okay, there. Or sorry, shoot it there. Uh, how much has the script changed since then to what appears in the screen? <coughs> it's it's changed. It's changed quite a bit. Actually, in fairness, the script, the shooting script, changed a bit, mm. but in the edit, it changed again hugely. Mm. Um, we shot characters and storylines that never even you know made the film like whole characters have been mm. removed in the edit yeah um uh, just very briefly that the, in the edit we discovered that once the film moved away from joe's story and martin it just the air went out of it um, and we realized that quite early on at the point where we we were fighting really hard to make these other scenes work and they were working on their own but they weren't working within the overall context of the film and then we said well let's try and just get rid of everything except martin you know and suddenly it started working hugely much better. Um, so the script did change quite a bit. The main thing that changed really between the plan for the Irish shoot and the English shoot was the cast. Um, the cast changed quite, I think we lost everybody except Martin and uh, Pat Short. Oh, Martin was in as originally, he was originally? Originally cast, yeah. <coughs> See, this is another change. Originally Martin was cast as Russ, the friend. Oh, okay. Um, because at the time we wanted, I didn't want to do a kind of, um, you know, I didn't want it to be just about boy meets girl and it's got to be a good looking guy with a big smile and everything. We wanted to, to push the fact that the character should be not cool and not really handsome and make it harder for him to get the girl and that's, that the girl would like him because of who he is and not because of what he looks like and everything. We were doing a kind of Napoleon Dynamite. Hmm. Uh, that was very much the, the zeitgeist at the time, geeky characters who were popular hmm. as such. And Martin, who can, I think, play you know, almost anything. Um, I wanted him to, to do that reverse kind of thing, so it'd be the kind of good-looking guy, and uh, and then when the the Irish thing col uh, collapsed and we had a bit distance from it, or whatever, we were saying, well, you know, like really, Schmartin has to play this. And who was the original? Well, it wouldn't be fair to say because <laughs> sorry, I can't forget. Uh, lovely guy, amazing actor, but it's a very different cast. For example, like we had Jennifer Allison playing Jane. Oh, okay. And we. Because we wanted again that kind of attitude from an angst or whatever, she's and singing, right? she's uh, she, Jennifer Ellison was in Brookside. Oh, she's she was the hairdresser in Brookside, oh, yes. and then she did a bit of singing. She did a bit of singing, yeah. and a lot of taking her clothes off, yes, tastefully. <laughs> she did Phantom of the Opera, exactly, yeah, and um, but she just did a fucking amazing audition, mm. and then we brought her back, and she did another amazing audition, and then uh, she, then I started do, uh, auditioning her with. The, the lead, the guy at the time playing uh, thing, and she just was amazing. And we saw a lot of people, and we were thought, you know, we didn't really care what other people thought. <coughs> I, I know she brings a lot of baggage to the role, and people have thought that, and we said, we just want to get it was right. And yeah. I think she's got amazing, huge talent, but, you know, she's got to make a living, and she does what she does. And um, so we changed the cast, and we changed our casting uh, agency as well, and we found this uh, woman, Shaheen Baig, who's just cast uh, the new version of Brighton Rock. Doing yeah, she's, she's amazing. Yeah, she's brilliant. Amazing. Like I was, I wanted Felicity Jones to play Mandy. I'd seen her in flashbacks of a fool, 
and I thought she was amazing. And uh, I was told, you're not going to get her because she was off, to, uh, she thinks she was about to do the Tempest to Dreamer and uh, she's since done Cemetery Junction and all this stuff. And um, and the, the casting director said, let's go for it. Let's really go for it. Write her a letter. Tell her why you think she'd be great for the role or whatever and talk to her or whatever. And she just had a great attitude about, she didn't care what anyone had done before or whatever, it was just who was right for that role and that was it. And... Uh, we got everybody we wanted except one, Stephen Graham, was supposed to play. Uh, was supposed to play this other character that's not in the film now. And I think two days before he had to pull out something else huge came up. Maybe it was Public Enemies. I think. Public Enemies. Yeah. 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 Uh, which is understandable. Um, but we pretty much got everyone we wanted from the cast point of view. You know, imagine getting him and then ending up on the cutting room floor. <laughs> yeah, but that was the problem. I mean, that's the way it is. I mean, my two of my favourite scenes in the film got cut. Uh, because I just couldn't make them work within, within the film, um, and it's like you have to kill your darlings, and it's very mm. frustrating. And uh, and even it's always the same. We had the premiere Saturday night, and Felicity came up to me and she goes, "Where's the art class scene?" Just one of the strongest scenes in the whole film, and her just it just couldn't work. In what the a film. life class or something. She's at a yeah painting yeah. class, and she's talking. It's this really long kind of tracking in shot towards her, and she's painting and. Uh, She's talking about this guy, it's a dancer, you know, and, and we know it's Joe. Mm. And, uh, but just the way she talks about him, um, that makes you realise that she gets Northern Soul, she gets what he's about, she gets what the scene is about. Um, and then there's a really nice reveal of her painting, which is him, you know, at the club kind of thing that she's been painting and sketching. And, it's, and it makes you understand why, also the way she is the one he should be chasing, as mm. opposed to the blonde girl. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we had this other scene uh, where it was a big tradition in the Northern Soul scene to go swimming after. You do the all-nighter till 7, 8 in the morning and then you go swimming. In the sea? Uh, no, in the local... Well, the if, if you were on, on the coast, probably, but it was, it was always the local swimming baths. And uh, Martin gets invited, or Joe gets invited swimming by Jane. And they have this big underwater kiss and everything. And, uh, and it, it had to cut. It had to cut it from the film because um, for a variety of reasons or whatever. I'm sure they'll end up on the DVD. Mm. Uh, the editing process was it was it long? Forever. How long? Uh, over, Officially, over, like. <laughs> uh, over a year, maybe a year and three In months. In and out, or, or oh yeah. yeah, it started off with, and it was great because I wanted to do that because we didn't have a deadline for distribution, which was great, and I was determined that I wasn't going to put it out or finish it until I knew that we covered every possible <coughs> angle, every possible cut. Uh, every possible transition had been done so that when we put it out we knew there wasn't a better film in there. I think we wrapped in August, September we shot and then I brought the footage back to Ireland. I had an avid in, in my living room and I started cutting for about three months. Then <coughs> uh, Christine came out, producer, and we made some notes, did some more cutting and then we decided it was time to get a proper editor, which we always planned to do but um, I always wanted someone really strong and really good and probably someone we couldn't afford. <laughs> so I figured if we did as much as possible ourselves and explored it, we would save a lot of time. And then we got this guy called Andrew Hume, who before that had cut, he just cut Control, the Anton Corbin film. And he did uh, The Acid House and uh, Gangster Number no. One, a bunch of stuff. Um, Stylish films. Yeah, yeah, but also great uh, great characters driven, mm. um, and uh, he was into Northern Soul as well, and you remember the scene, and um, 
and he, we showed him a rough cut or whatever and he said come on board for four or five weeks I think he ended up doing eight or nine weeks and um, and I remember first uh, yeah I think I gave him a cut that was I don't know 110 minutes and then he showed us a 70 minute version mm-hmm. you know um, which was great interesting as well but we just we cut it and then we went away and we left it alone for a while and then we cut it and then we go away for a while and then it was like well because it had changed so much in the cut, we, we really needed to get one or two other scenes to make things link and make sense. And we knew we were going back to shoot one or two things anyway, so I said, let's push the road, let's write new scenes. And For example, the scene where Joe goes to the hairdressers to show off his brand new top to the girls was, a, was, a, was a last minute thing. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and um, so, and then we brought Jeff the writer, he brought him over to Dublin to do some more rewrites and he stayed with me and what we were doing is we'd be writing scenes and I would go and get um, stills of them and we'd type in the dialogue and we'd run bits of music whatever and then edit it and cut it into the film to see how well to get some kind of sense of whether they were going to work or not before we went and spent a load of money shooting them Mm -hmm. so a lot of scenes went through that process of just characters stills of them you know in the locations that use it the location as a backdrop still of the location and we did a bunch of that, and then we went out and shot it, and then we did some more editing, and then we did some more editing, and then we did uh, we did five test screens across Britain, and then we did some more editing, more editing, and then and then were finally they comprehe- we got to go. were they comprehension test screenings like were they, or were they more about do you, which character do you like and there, that, like we had a lot of that general stuff as well, though I'm not that interested really because I mean they all said they hated Alan, and we thought well that's great that's exactly what he's supposed <laughs> to do so it's. They, they can be a bit misleading your favourite character and thing it was more a case of um, things like uh, pace mm. uh, beginning middle or end did you find it slow anywhere faster or could you understand what everyone was saying we had to ADR Pat uh, short in one scene uh, he says what do you think of Cork Joe and every, all people could hear is what do you think of Cock Joe <laughs> <laughs> so we had, to, had and that suit yeah so, so <laughs> inviting him out for a drink scene, yeah <laughs> So, so, we had to. Uh, so, if you listen to it again, you hear him say, "What do you think of?" And this pause of ADR cork. Yeah. Uh, so it was. It was quite in depth about following the story and understanding what was going on and who did you want Joe to get with and do which characters you like and uh, stuff like that. Um, but I mean, it kind of just all of those test screens do is reaffirm your own instincts anyway. Yes. You know when it's yeah. working when it's not. Though you can, when you're working on it that long, you can sometimes get too close to it, which is another reason why I love taking a break. Yeah. Uh, we take a break for two months, I mean, and then we go back to it fresh, as fresh as we could be or whatever. Um, but I think literally, literally the, the, that art class scene came out, I think, 20 minutes before we locked the picture while we were doing in the online credits and stuff. Um, and so had Christine uh, kept some money aside to shoot some more pick up some extra scenes or was that did you have to go and get no, some no we had to get that? it and also what happened was uh, the actress Nicola Birdie who plays Jane got sick and uh, so we lost a lot of time as well and uh, we got some insurance oh right okay uh, and that we, we had to reinvest that back in obviously yes, which was yeah. there for thank god to sick during the shoot during the shoot yeah mm. um, I mean she wasn't sick but she got uh, I don't know what it's called Impetigo, impetigo. It's basically just like a rash on the yes, side of the yeah, mouth, yeah. which isn't obviously very attractive on one of your leading ladies, yes, mm-hmm. and highly contagious. Yeah. So we tried shooting her from just one side only, you know, and then a lot of 
makeup and you could it just wasn't right wasn't so right, um, we couldn't we couldn't use it so in the end we just had to, uh, to just pick up the reshoots and then Molinaire the post-production company they were um, a lot of people sort of deferring fees then at that stage uh, but also the, a lot of the music we were getting for close to nothing you know I mean some of the songs would have should have cost us 20,000 or whatever we were getting them at a steal 500 how did, how did that work out? I mean, that's, well, I mean even to find out the, who, who owns those songs... Well, that was part of the problem as well. I'll tell you another story just after that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> we had an amazing guy, John Boltwood, who was our music supervisor and clearance guy, and um, it was tracking people down was really hard and trying to go after a lot of these huge hits. And there were times when we were told no, and then I would write the begging letter. Um, this is going to be huge. <laughs> this is one of the biggest Northern Soul anthems on the scene. If it's not in the film, people are going to wonder why you're going to draw attention to yourself. Um, <laughs> just anything I could say to get this. I have some information on your wife. Well, no, I didn't quite go that far. Um, I was almost going to fly to to uh, Philadelphia, Gamble and Huff. We were trying to clear a track from them. It just didn't happen in the end. Um, and, uh, and we ended up getting an awful lot of our, our first choices and it was favourite nation so there was a set fee and we're like look it's a no budget film it's not a big Hollywood mm. thing no mm. one's getting rich out of this by any means um, it's just a feel good thing and the fans will love it and then there'll be a soundtrack album so you'll get something there'll be an album yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think it's out Monday that'll be a killer album yeah hopefully yeah, yeah. Um, so um, so it was just a lot of perseverance and, and again I found with the personal touch really helps like if you're ever been told no you know and just don't take it for an answer um, there are some bands we managed to track down and I just write them emails explaining why it was so important to have this song in this place in this film <coughs> and I think it works a lot better because if they're just talking to a suit in an office they don't really trust them particularly artists you know yeah. whereas when they get to talk to the director uh, it's not that they feel more important but they understand where we're coming from mm. but I some of you may have noticed, but in the casino scenes, uh, some of the dancing, we used original footage from a documentary made in 1976 about the Wigan Casino. And that was, a, I think it's called... Uh, it's cut into the film. It's cut into the film. Wow. Um, uh, we obviously, we spent a lot of time grading yeah, it yeah. up and stuff. Um, but we needed permission from these people to use the clips. So one of the girls in the office floor spent about two months like a private investigator trying to track down where all these people are 30 or 40 years later and get the permission to sign off and stuff. Um, and at the premiere it was amazing. We met people who, I met this uh, this woman whose husband had recently just died and he was one of the original dancers and everything. And it was it was very strange, but it felt, uh, it was almost like an homage to the original place yeah. there to just to cut those shots in. I mean, it's it must have been invaluable that because you've got the, the fact what they used to wear. Well, that was you know. Yeah, it's all there, and the people complain. You know, I've seen some of the clay. It's it's not the real deal. And I said, actually, my friend, mm -hmm. it is the real yeah, deal. Yeah, it yeah, yeah. It's as real as it gets. Um, but that was, I mean, that was all part of the research as well. You know, our costume designer was a regular at the Wigan Casino. So he knows what they were wearing because he he was there. He wore it. Um, yeah. We had like twenty-five consultants. Everyone on the scene was a, was a consultant. Right. Because they were very quick to let you know how much they, they knew because yeah, they yeah. were there. Yeah. It's one of those pla things, you know. Everyone was there, you know. Even though some people maybe not have actually. I been swear there. I was there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That book. Um, yeah. 
<coughs> so there, um, so there was no shortage of people offering information. I remember a guy uh, gave me a DVD and there was a thousand Northern Soul songs on it. I, I ended up with about I'd say six thousand Northern Soul songs because there was this fear that you would miss an absolute classic, yeah. you know. Yeah. And there were some stuff there was about another 20 great songs that I absolutely adore that I couldn't get into them, I couldn't make them work in, in terms of relevance or the tone to the scene and such that uh, that could have made it in a, a different film maybe, you know. Had, had any of the tracks been cleared before you went to shoot? Yeah, we had to clear in advance um, Tainted Love anyway, mm. I wanted to clear, and the main one was um, the song for the record that she gets, Mandy get, buys for Joe, you didn't say a word. Yeah. Um, which was called the Bond song back in the day because it has that very yes. similar James Bond thing. Um, and I think... Um, was there an Edwin Starr track or something? Edwin didn't make it in. No. Um, there was another one, the Tom Jones track, Face of a Loser, because oh, Pat's singing along to it um, in the film. Um, Did you get that for 500 quid? Yeah. Pretty good. Wow. Yeah. Um, Both sides, publishing and... and yes, the yeah. yeah. Wow. But you can't, I mean, I, I remember, you know, you know, Lee Hickey, I remember him telling me a few years ago you can get Britney Spears for 500 quid now because this was when her, they thought her career was over and people thought they'd never be able to sell the Britney Spears song again, you know. So you'd be amazed at what you can get mm. look around, you know. Yeah, it, you, you, I think the personal touch really helps. Uh, yeah. It's just a lot of legwork. Mu I'm quite happy to say it's public. The music industry are fucking idiots. Yeah. Um, they really don't know there are some their elbow takes them forever to do something. That's why their business is dying. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. There's no yeah. mystery as to me why the music is falling apart just because mm. they're morons. Um, they have targets to hit. They have to clear stuff. And we, you know, clearance departments, and you have to, your department has to hit 50,000 this <coughs> month or whatever. So there's no negotiation. You can't talk to, you talk to them, whatever. They got the target it, it's take it or leave it. There's certainly no interest in the film or, no. you know, no. um, the people who sell the stuff aren't artists that don't understand it. And they don't really care. It's just a product they're selling, um, but they are—they are useless. They've got better because their business is falling apart. Yeah, you know, they've got better at calling you back. I remember when yeah. ten years ago they wouldn't—they just put the phone down. You know, as soon as you'd say, oh, you know, making this low-budget film, bang, yeah. it was over. Like yeah. Yeah. the conversation was dead. You know, because it was going to be like fifteen grand to clear the track, and that was it. You know, the take it budget of your. Yeah, the art department yeah, or something, yeah, you know. Yeah. But they don't care, and they don't have the they don't see the long, you know, the, the long game. No, 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 you're right. You're right. Yeah. Um, uh, so uh, long editing period. I mean, that's a bit of a luxury. I must say, I, I love that idea myself. You know, I think, yeah. yeah. I mean, I would. I did this. I think. I think it was with Force. We did a Mike Lee masterclass, whatever it was called. He was talking about his process. Uh, which to me in some ways sounds like the most sensible way to, <coughs> to make a film. Um, obviously, very few of us have that luxury. But certainly, uh, if you don't have... Um, when you're working at this level, I think you can take your time with it, and it only benefits the film. I don't understand films that spend millions and millions and then only gives themselves eight weeks mm. to cut the picture, mm. and uh, and then that's it forever. Mm. You know... Um, I suppose that the script is strong enough and for everything is great. Some films I don't need that really long period as such, but I like exploring, because you know yourself or anyone who's, or all of us here, you can take two scenes and swap them around and it changes everything, mm. the meaning mm -hmm. of it. So for me it was like, you know, Jigsaw, I just love moving the pieces around, constantly moving the pieces around, um, because you never know what you're going to find or what surprises you're going to get or it's going to send you in a new direction or whatever. 
and we cheated scenes around and things that happened out of different timelines as such that uh, that were only a benefit to the film. Um, so I thought it was great. And it was also, I, I think it was around the time as well, Lance Daly was cutting Kisses. Mm. And I was like, you're taking your time with it. And he goes, that's exactly. And he goes, I'm not going to rush it. If it's not ready, it's not ready. If I'm not happy with it, I'm not happy with it. And uh, and uh, and he did take his time with it, and it was worth it in the end. And it's it's Jim can't do that more often. I think I think you also seem to enjoy it, Jimmy, because some directors I talk to really don't seem to find it torturous. Really, they're just yeah, because they just kind of don't know. You know, are they leaving something out? Should they be? You know, some directors I think find it quite. Well, I it's my favourite part of the process. Really? Doubt. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just got to say, Bert, I've never uh, any director I've ever come across, you've to basically pull, pull them from. out of the edit suite and say that is it, it's over, and they're crying, you know. I know, but that's why, and sometimes they just don't know when to let it go. Oh I yeah, yeah. If you're, if you're battling with other producers who are saying we want this, and they're kind of trying to, I think, I think they don't know when. To, I think they don't know when to go until it's over, and then they know. Yeah. Um, I don't know, it depends. I mean, there was, when we finished, we were finished. And I, I was quite happy to let it go because I knew really? we'd, we'd explored everything. But having said that today, this afternoon, I, I had realised there was a scene I could have put somewhere else. <laughs> and cut out. But it's the only one. It's the only one. And I met the editor again recently and he saw it again recently. He, he went, wouldn't change a frame. Wouldn't change a frame? Wow. Couldn't. There isn't a frame there. And when it gets, the, yeah. I mean, it does get silly, but you do get to the point where you spend 10 minutes looking at a cut and going, is it one frame or two? <laughs> it literally gets yeah. to that point. And then sometimes you can lose sight of the big picture, but sometimes two or three frames you keep. And that's another thing that just reminds me, Lance kept saying, it's not about, you know, the scenes or whatever. It's, it's, the, it's the frames within the frames that you're cutting or whatever. And if you do, if you make enough wrong ones of them, you've lost the scene or you've lost you know a passage to play and and the the challenge is always to try and keep the viewer in the film every split second of it um, which is the hardest thing keep them entertained the whole way through it and your fears of losing that at any stage so that's why I think it's worth fighting over every frame it can be a bit ridiculous but and what about uh, your uh, the relationship with your I mean you obviously had a good relationship with Christine but were there other producers coming in later on that would have had an opinion or were kind of insisting on certain aspects of the film in terms of the edit? No. No. Um, it, we were really had the freedom. It was it was became this holy trinity at the end of myself, Christine and Andrew the editor. And um, and literally it was the three of us in the suite nonstop for the last couple of weeks. Um, um, I mean Christine was also she was working on getting money and all sorts of things, you know, um, and then every now and then when we finished we would just play, she'd look up and have a look, and, then, mm. and it was really useful to have her opinion because you've got these two middle-aged men cutting a lot of, you know, scenes for youngsters and and two very strong female characters as well that we wanted a kind of female opinion always about, would you believe, if Joe said this, would you believe it, would you mm. laugh at him and such, and, she, and she's a very good eye for story as well. Um, and the three of us were literally, we had no pressure from... We get, we take feedback from distributors and co-producers and other people like that. And but at the end of the day, it was literally just the three of us thrashing it out of the room. So um, you've got solo pictures, uh, yeah, yeah, good guys, those guys. I think. Um, 
We'll see. <laughs> but uh, what uh, what stage did they come in? Did, did they see it? They were on board from from the start. Oh right, okay. Which, which Before was, it got made. Yeah. Okay. Which okay. was great because. Um, were they not banging on the door to get the thing out? No. Um, not really. They were um, sales agent were, but not distributor soda because soda were like it's got to be right and right. Uh, and. Um, and the plan was there was a point at which we're, we're not going to go you had to be ready in time for a certain point and <coughs> we realised we weren't going to make the deadline last year which was I think the 50th anniversary of Motown uh, and we said well we're, we won't finish in time for the spring so let's skip the summer because it's all the blockbusters mm. in fact they're actually killing us right now because is uh, it a, it's, it's released now is it? Um, it the 3rd of September ok, okay. Uh, yeah 3rd of September um, but we didn't do, we're not releasing on print, we're going digital. Okay. But all the digital screens are taken up with all the 3D films. Yeah, of course, yeah. And of course Avatar is coming back because it hasn't made nearly enough money. <laughs> and, and another it's eight minutes longer. It's eight minutes longer. Well, that's, that's worth the <laughs> price of admission. I don't think it'll be around longer. <clears throat> you never know. So it's, it's, uh, it's problematic. But we, but there, it's, it's an unusual release in the UK as well because it's not just cinemas, it's going out with all-nighters as well, so it's like an event. Yeah, yeah, yeah. in that yeah. way, um, which also means we probably get a few more quid because, you know, cinemas get 70% of the door of some, pla some places. And, you know, by the time the distributor and sales agent have got their money and the promotion costs have been paid off, okay. there's never, there's never okay. anything left. Um, so, uh, and HMV have jumped on board, for some, obviously, because of the music. They're doing a big thing with it as well. Uh, and when it comes out in DVD. And who's releasing the album? Is it a uh, Universal. Right, okay. okay. Uh, we're doing a great job. It's <laughs> uh, <laughs> a really nice uh, uh, booklet, and um, that's out next week, I think. Yeah. And how many, uh, oh, I know they're not prints, but many digital prints, many screens is it going into? I think it's 40 in the UK, and... Um, the only thing that's been disappointing about it is the Irish release. Uh, I think Soda wanted to keep control of it. I was trying to get Eclipse in, mm -hmm. or Element, mm -hmm. to get involved um, because obviously they know Patch, they put Garage out, and they know the Irish market. And I think Soda decided they wanted to control it. And yeah. they may have been a bit late out of the gate, but the result being it's going out on one screen in the screen in the gate in Cork, and that's it. Um, which is disappointing because the Irish love their music. Yeah. And Pat Short, I think, is a big draw. Um, and with and a there good was a scene here, you know. There's yeah, there's still and there still is. I still yeah. get, yeah. I still get my regular texts every, you know, Friday. Keep the faith. Uh, yeah. This <laughs> sleepless nights. Um, so that's the only disappointing thing about it. It's a bit of a limp release here. Um, well, you know, if it, uh, if it, uh, is picks up in London, in England. In yeah, you never know. It might come back later. Like yeah. I know the IFI want to do an all nighter. Mm. They want to do a show it there and then turn the whole venue into a soul club and such. Mm. Um, and there's certainly plenty of. Uh, people here, I think that you know, you get a good night out of it. Um, I keep hearing people, though, you know, it keeps cropping up every now and then. People are beginning to come out of the woodwork, especially in media. And a lot of people who were around <coughs> the scene back in the day, whatever, well, they seem to become either journalists or or work in the arts in some sense, or are all these closet northern soul fanatics, mm -hmm. you know. And they don't shout from the rooftops, and it never went mainstream. Um, hugely, there was a brief period there after that documentary. And, um, when did that when did that documentary come out? That was seventy six, I think it was Granada. Yeah. And um, they took a vote in the casino whether or not to let the cameras in, and they overwhelmingly rejected it. But the owner at the time said, "Fuck it, I'll bring them in anyway." Mm -hmm. And um, 
So, because they had to turn the lights on for all the filming, and everyone was freaked out because they're all speeding out of the mine. So, there's a lot of people hiding. And one of the two characters you can see, there was a few dancers we wanted to put in, we couldn't because they were obviously just gone. Um, and uh, is it <coughs> interviews with with, uh, with with some people in the documentary? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, in the documentary, it's weird. It's more about yeah, there is. It's about this really geeky bearded guy who collects records. Right. Who's trying to explain, and a girl who works in a laundrette. Uh, and explain what it's, the scene is about and uh, and how much they love it and the record collecting. It's the sense of community and they love the fact that no one else gets it and they mm. don't want anyone else to get it. In fact, there's a huge part of the, the, the North and South community who don't want this film to come out. They don't want it really? going mainstream at all. Um, no, I mean, they, they are, of, of all music genres, they are the Al-Qaeda of their scene. <laughs> they are, to say it's fanatical is an understatement. Um, they're, they are that passionate about it. Um, even though, like we've discovered, it's huge in Germany and in, in Asia, the scene is becoming really popular again there. Um, so we're also, I'm also really just curious to see how it'll go down in America. Mm. Uh, I remember being in a record shop in Detroit and uh, just going up to the counter with a couple of these Northern uh, Soul CDs I'd found, and the guy at the counter looking at me going, "What's a skinny little white boy doing buying all these?" And he was explaining about Northern Soul. He had no idea. Yeah. Fascinated by it. Yeah. Um, I'm just asking a question, question about like shooting on film. I mean, it's actually funny you mentioned. I didn't realize it was shot. At, you know, you can't really yeah. tell on this projection yeah. here. You know, but I didn't realize it's shot on film. And there is a trend actually, probably after you did your film, really to shooting stuff on 16 mil or Super 16 again, because it actually is cheaper now to shoot it digitally. Because the cameras, nobody wants them. Yeah, you get the stock for. Fuck yeah, all, you yeah. know, and uh, and the labs will do you a great deal because yeah. there's no film going through. Yeah. So you can. It's, so it's actually the reverse of shooting something digitally. But uh, so what I wanted to ask was um, if you could, sh because of the difficulties involved in a single camera shoot, would you would you still go and shoot on film again? Straight away. Straight away. Yeah. Would you? I mean, you'd obviously like another camera there, uh, just to for certain times for the yeah, dance. I'm just thinking, I can't yeah. believe you what you did with one camera. <laughs> And that, to be honest, I can't believe what you did for four hundred grand. I'm quite amazed. The, not, uh, it looks like a film that would cost, you know, the art between one and two million. The art department was ten grand. And that included, for the whole film. That included vehicles as well. I think mean, that's remarkable. Oh, yeah, yeah. really um, remarkable. Um, it was a lot of, yeah, a lot of ten grand. Uh, ridiculous favors and stuff were pulled and came into that. But uh, was, it, was the talent? Did the talent? Uh, did they? Do it at a cut rate. Yeah, they did deals. deals they yeah. all did deals and percentage. Um, they had to because the great thing <coughs> about them was as well, if anyone is doing for this money, is doing this for the money, then we don't want them. Yes. Yeah. You know, you have to. It wasn't. When we told them straight up, it's not that kind of gig. You have to do this film because you love it. Mm. Otherwise, there's no point. And that was with the crew as well, and it became really, really hard dragging people through that because there were long days and we were going over sometimes and um, and the schedule was changing almost daily and the scripts were changing you know and it was really tough to try and keep everyone focused and positive um, and most because we got off to such a bad start we were so way behind that there was a sense of the sinking ship before it even started mm -hmm. and then we'd bring the 700 extras in and we'd shoot that and then at the end of the day everyone was like I, I can see why we're doing this now oh, right, you yeah, know yeah. there's um, and you just get great occasionally great moments funny moments every now and then where um, the crew would just understand what it was all about you know mm -hmm. and we'd show 
I think we showed some scenes halfway through. We had a piss up and uh, I always like doing every film halfway through, have a bit of a party, just as a thank you, and show people the work, works, the work, yeah, so yeah, they understand yeah. what we're aiming towards and, and getting for. And uh, and I remember all the heads going ah, particularly when they hear the you know the music, the music and we put some dancing scenes together and uh, they got they were excited the next day coming into work. It's <laughs> great. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's a good idea. That helps. Uh, I mean, your cast like Nicola Burley's gone on to she's been in the biggest grossing British film ever. Like ridiculous, uh, absolutely ridiculous. Step, yeah. uh, it's not step up. What do you call it? Yeah. It's something. Street dance. Street dance. Three D. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huge. Um, which uh, is funny Fel because Felicity's done. Felicity you know, Summerdew Junction. Same, yeah. Um, um, yeah, she's she's also amazingly talented and uh, and it's always the way you know it's like we do this years ago and then the stuff happens afterwards mm. and then we come out because we took so long like I saw one review going this is a film trying to be Cemetery Junction really even though we were obviously yeah. out finished long before which mm. I, you know you're going to get um, um, but yeah they've all in the runway done done great stuff and great work since and, and will do in the future as well and as well very quickly about your relationship with uh, Huey Morgan uh, I was amazed by his accent actually it was really good did you is it his that's voice? him it's yeah amazing. it's definitely hey. him we did it, um, he came down and he uh, yeah, he got into character straight away and stank the place out with his, uh, with his reefers <laughs> to get into character. Um, and he did his accent and it was, it was okay. Yeah. It wasn't great, it, wasn't, it was okay. And then we brought him in to AD, do ADR and it was brilliant because he'd just been living in London a lot longer. Right. So, um, so we, we didn't need to do a huge amount uh, extra with him, you know. Yeah. Um, plus, I mean, he's, he takes it very seriously, you know, he, he actually genuinely... Um, he wants to act. He, he wants to be, not only just want to act, but he wants to be taken seriously as an actor right, as well. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, he just <coughs> keeps getting cast in all these kind of goofy stoner uh, roles uh, here and Wonder there why. and stuff. No <laughs> idea. But, uh, but character was it? He plays Didi, the record store owner. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so he really, um, yeah, he was, he, he turned out to be great. You, you know, know who he is, yeah? No. He play, he's a singer uh, with the Fun Loving Criminals. Oh, They're a big New York band. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't have his hair like that. He's, you know. yeah, yeah, I figured that. Yeah. Yeah. Scooby Snacks was their hit. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and he knew, it was funny because he knew a lot of the other actors by reputation, and he knew he was up against it, and he knew this wasn't like. Because the last movie I did, uh, he was supposed to be on set at half eight, and he went to bed at nine o'clock that morning after four nights that were playing the Olympias. Yeah. session and um, he pulled it together in the end that he came in he was great so we knew this was a lot more serious and he just didn't want to fuck it up um, but the most interesting reaction we had to an actor coming in was, was Pat Short because nobody knew him from Killing a Scully they all thought how did you get this extraordinary actor who did Garage and that was his reputation yeah. and, and my god he's so funny <laughs> I didn't realise he was such a funny guy you know and then they started googling YouTube and would see a lot of so just mad stuff and unbelievables and, uh, <laughs> and uh, killing a scully or whatever and uh, so there was a very healthy respect amongst all of them and a great energy and energy between all of them as well you know right, yeah. they're all good characters what's next Jimmy I'd love to know after this um, you I've got I've got three weeks left on Matty uh, which is Pat Short's new series um, and then I've got to finish the Lear documentary the band lyric. Yeah. All oh, right. Okay. Um, 
So that's pretty much done, but it's... This is the great thing was, was that I could work on Soul Boy and then come back to Ireland and do another couple of months on the Lear documentary and, and go backwards and forwards. And I found that fascinating, being able to jump from one project to another and how they feed into each other as well, and, you know, how they, um, how they contribute in some way to each other in the, in the post-process as well, in the editing of telling the story. Um, so I've got to finish that and, uh, and then finish Matty's thing. Uh, can I just ask one more question about the when it was shown in Stoke Saturday night? Did you say last Saturday night? Just just gone. Yeah. Um, and did you get a lot of Northern Soul heads coming down for it? It was only Northern Soul heads. Mostly Northern Soul heads. It was. Uh, I'll never forget. I actually uh, went up at the stage to introduce the thing, and uh, I felt like I should have been wearing a bulletproof vest or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, it's I'm shit you not. It's that fanatical, you know. And uh, we got a huge amount of abuse from some quarters uh, on one particular website. So who hadn't even seen the film? Oh no! Oh, right, just the idea of making it was. Well, it was that, and um, you know, they'd seen the trailer and had found somebody was wearing the wrong shoes. Oh right. You know, so um, so we 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 really didn't know how how it was going to go down at all. It really was like going into the lion's den and. Um, but they really liked it, and the, and the thing that pleased me most was that when when you when I was being nabbed all over the place, they wanted to talk about the story, which was the most important part of it, you know. Um, they were kind of just relieved that it it wasn't it wasn't uh, that it was fairly uh, honestly reflective of the scene and the time and the attention to detail that went into it, and um, so they they were kind of relieved that we didn't screw it up, basically, mm-hmm. you know. They probably they probably also thought it might have been trying to, or you know, the drugs and all that showed in a bad light. Well, so. this is the film. Everyone has their own memories of the place, and it's very special to them. And mm. what film we made may not be their memory of the scene <coughs> or whatever. So just because it's not theirs, <coughs> but you know, I'd had people come up to me and say there was never ever one single fight in the Wigan Casino, and yet I'd met a guy when we were shooting, and he says, "See that scar? I got that in the toilets <laughs> of the casino one night yeah. when I got jumped," yeah. and people were saying. The casino had nothing to do with romance. There was never any of that going on at all. And the amount of couples I met who, like, we met at the casino oh, and we yeah, used yeah. to have our first snog right in, the, in there in the corner. And so everyone has their own idea of the uh, history of the place. Um, Did you make that sign, Casino Club? Yeah. That was probably the art department budget. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> we had to... We actually, we that's had based to, on the original sign, obviously, yeah. It was, and we... I f- we there's a documentary about a guy who robbed that sign, um, but we couldn't. We never tracked him down in the end. <laughs> we tried to get the original, but um, that was the only time we were outside Stoke. That was a, an old cinema in Birmingham. We had to. We found the cinema in Birmingham. We said, "Let's go shoot it there. It's great." And we we put up fake brick walls and stuff. And uh, though on the doors, you can see there's this horrible tacky silver doors, and every time I see it, it drives me crazy. <clears throat> But it was right beside the M6, so we basically had to ADR most of the dialogue uh, outside the mm-hmm. casino, which was really frustrating. And the whole ending scene was 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 actually shot in a laneway somewhere else because we rewrote that and changed changed the ending of it as well. So a lot of changes throughout. But um, yeah, the, we wanted to try and recreate this. The sign obviously was the first time you see that yeah, casino sign. Yeah. You know. It, it, has to be and this um, thing about two o'clock and them opening the door and all that yeah. kind of stuff is that that's that's pretty much yeah I mean I've dramatised it with the watch of course two o'clock in the morning it, yeah. it didn't start till two o'clock in the morning oh. I finished at what eight eight a.m. Yeah. Um, and there was there was no bar 
I think they had water and leucosate and coke, maybe. Yeah, it's um, very rave stuff, isn't it? Yeah. This was the forerunner of the rave yeah. culture, yeah. And all these rave kids think they're so new and hip yeah. and <laughs> trendy. And it was going, it was their parents who were at it. But they used to, I mean, I met people there and said I was there when I was 14. You know, they used to sneak out at night and uh, and they would, you know, stow away on buses and trains and all sorts. And then there was a back door they'd kick in. And then there's uh, in front of the DJ booth on the stage every every couple of weeks paneling kick in and about 50 kids would come streaming through <laughs> into the crowd and because the thing was there was no lighting system there was one red light on either side and it was just complete darkness around the edges you couldn't see anything um it used to, it used to rain inside there was no air conditioning so the walls were just dripping right. um, with sweat and they had no bass bins until the second year so it was just this horrific volume of just um with this high tempo frequency stuff driving them crazy um Bizarre, bizarre place, yeah. Amazing. Well, that's nice. a great insight, Jimmy. Yeah. Fantastic. And congratulations Thank you for listening to SDGI Directors in Dialogue. For more information on the Screen Directors Guild of Ireland, visit us at www.sdgi.ie.